but there's no real connections between the sheets. They're just stacked up by static cling. Hello, and welcome to episode number 24 of RSVP, the podcast about stationery and so much more. I'm your host, Lenore, and my co-hosts are Les and Dee. Today, we are nerding out on graphite science, but first, let's hear about what everyone's consuming. So, Dee, what's your medium and what's your poison? I am drinking a flat white from Starbucks, my favorite Starbucks that actually makes them correctly. <gasps> I know, right? Shocker. I, I found one. <laughs> Was your barista a unicorn? No, actually, I, I started a conversation with her the other day she actually is just doing this because she's in college but she used to be an actual barista uh-huh. like like at a mom and pop coffee shop mm. so i think that's why i got lucky yeah um, which sucks because when i worked at starbucks the training was so much more rigorous and we went to coffee college we learned all about coffee and how to taste coffee and all this stuff and they don't do that anymore so that's sad that's very sad so I'm doing that. Um, I've been doing a lot of schoolwork, so I haven't had time to read anything for pleasure, which sucks. Um, but in between, I've been playing with my Nintendo Switch, which I purchased about a year ago and barely touch it. And I'm tired of hearing my wife say, you bought this thing and you don't use it. So <laughs> I picked it up the other day and I'm playing this game called Stardew Valley, which I recommend to everybody. It's on PC, PS4. Switch. Um, it's a farming sim game. So it's really cool. It's really fun. And scratches that itch of, of collecting things. Mm-hmm. So, um, But that's it for me. What about you, Lenore? I am drinking some Tazo chai. And I've spiked it with some ginger honey crystals instant thing, which is pretty nice. No- I mean, they're, they're nicer than they sound. It sort of makes a... Uh, a hot ginger aid <laughs> when you <laughs> it's a lot of sugar so I'm using half a packet but I love the I love the spike of ginger in there um, so that's kind of nice and I um, I'm writing in honor of the graphite um, I was looking up you know kind of the history and uses of graphite today so I'm writing with the oldest pencil I own which is the Doubleday Huber Dolan Company of Kalamazoo Michigan this gorgeous number two pencil that's probably a, about a hundred years old. And I'm writing again in, in honor of the graphite theme. Um, I'm writing in a no brand notebooks, uh, hex paper notebook, hex grid. <laughs> so, and if you don't get that yet, you will in a few minutes. So, yeah. And, uh, I have been on a Marvel movies kick lately. Spawn and I have been watching, We've been watching Marvel movies, so um, we recently watched. Well, we went to see. Oh, we went to see Black Panther, of course, which mm. is really, really good. Um, it's it might be my favorite of all of the Marvel movies, and uh, and she loved it. And so, in preparation for that, we were watching uh, Captain America: Civil War, and then of course, you know, then we had to go back and start watching. So we watched. Uh, we watched Iron Man and shoot Iron Man and Iron Man two and Guardians of the Galaxy, which I hadn't seen before. And we've got you know so we've got a we've got a combination of our Netflix DVD queue and our 
our Netflix streaming queue that we're kind of working our way through those. So that's been my consumption uh, <laughs> of media lately. Mm. <laughs> so what about you, Les? I, um, my wife and I went out for coffee this morning. So we went to this little cafe here in town and I snagged a extra large cup of Stumptown Holler Mountain, which is delicious coffee. I also have a big jug of water and a, one of those weird new diet Cokes that is ginger lime in flavor. Ooh. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not feeling it. I'm not a big diet Coke fan anyway. And this is just a little weird. I'm not, yeah, not, not a fan. Um, I've been reading, I've been reading a lot. Like, so my, my, I talked last episode about how my job is in flux because I have a new boss and my uh-huh. supervisor was filling in. My supervisor is now, now transitioned out. It's been about two weeks since the new boss has been there and I really like her, but she's very, very, different than my previous box uh, boss so i'm trying when i come home i i need to unwind mm-hmm. and so i've been reading a lot and there's this author named Kara malone i don't know if it's malone or malone i'm gonna go with malone um so i've been reading a lot of her writing lately she writes uh female female romance that includes a lot of really interesting characters like one of her series has a character with mild Asperger's, who's very high functioning, mm-hmm. uh, which I find really interesting because you don't usually see people who are neuro atypical in romance or in literature in general, unless they're no. sort of like weird, like on TV. You know what I mean? So yeah. I'm, and this person's very normal. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, they're nor- they're neural atypical, but they're a very normal person. So I really enjoy that. Uh, she does a really good job of bringing characters to life. Uh, so that's good. Also, I don't want to go too deep into this, but I started reading Brave by Rose McGowan. I've got (laughs) so many thoughts and feelings on it, and the majority of them are not good, and I know that's going to yuck a lot of people's yum, but it's... No, it won't mind. Um, it's, it's really... I want to say it reads like an old blog, like, you know, the blogs of the early 2000s where everyone was like, this is my life and I'm putting it, you know, my diary online and this is my journal. That's what it (laughs) reads like. Very early 20s, self-centered, like the, this is my private journal and I'm putting it out there for everyone to read. If you don't like it, sorry, Lenore, you're going to have to bleep that i'll manage but that's what the tone of the book is like and i really it feels like the editors didn't tell her this doesn't read well or she wouldn't listen to the editors and that's not to diminish her pain because there's a lot of pain in this book but it's really just it's barely readable to the point where it's like i read a lot of crap I mean, I read self-published <laughs> lesbian romance novels. I read a lot of crap. Like, you know, not all les- self-published. And self-published does not equate to crap because a lot of the people who are self-publishing in romance actually have a team behind them helping them edit. So a lot of it's actually really good. But there's some of it out there that people are like, I'm going to put my MFA novel out on on Kindle. And so there's, there's a lot of crap. And I read the crap. I read the crap. I love the crap. This is not readable. This is, 
uh, yeah, it's, I don't know. I don't know how a major publisher put it out there. Uh, I feel like it was pushed out there too quickly. It could be great, but it's just not. It's really not good. Anyway, so there, I, I ranted and I said I wasn't going to, and I'm sorry. That's people, okay. people can contact me via, via whatever social media they want and yell at me because I don't like Brave. No, I, I, we talked about it briefly online and I think, I think I agree with your points even though I haven't read it yet. Um, I wouldn't suggest it. Part. I wouldn't, I wouldn't actually suggest it. Like, so this is the other side of it. Um, the other side of this book is if you have a background in childhood trauma or abuse, oh. I would not suggest you read it okay. because it is going to be horribly triggering. There's a lot, like if I had a client who told me I want to write a book like this, I would sit down and I would talk to them about the Penna Baker theory, all of the like writing theories surrounding mm -hmm. writing about trauma and writing about your past history and how you can do it in a healing way versus write, sitting down writing and triggering yourself and sending yourself off into a spiral of mental health problems because that's... I wouldn't, I would, if my, if a client came to me and said, I want to read Brave and I knew their past history in terms of trauma, I would say, stay the hell away from Brave. There are other books that you can read that are going to help be helpful and not triggering. And this is, Brave is not one of them. I will not be reading that book. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I like, I don't, I don't have, I don't have a history in, in this sort of trauma that she's, exploring and i find it triggering i find like yeah. after i i have to read like a chapter or two and then do something to purge that skin crawling sensation i get from reading brave like it's been very slow going normally like i sit down and i plow through 200 pages in a couple of hours and you know good this i read a couple of chapters then i'm like i need to read some really trashy fiction to purge that and you know cleanse my palate yeah which makes me wonder what was her intention with writing this was it for shock value or did she or was it for shock value or did no one sit down and tell her you're gonna trigger the hell out of yourself writing this and then when you go on the press tour for this book people are going to ask you about your childhood people are going to ask you specific questions about your trauma and did no one care about her enough to say, don't write it this way. There are better yeah. ways to write this. Yeah. All right. Anyway. Well, that wasn't depressing at all. No, no. <laughs> terribly sorry. So let's let's move into what's exciting. D, tell us what's exciting and cleanse our palate from this horrible topic. Um, I'm going to Florida for eight days. Yay! Excellent. I'm, I'm super excited. Also kind of nervous because we're driving. Um, and that's a long way from where I am in Massachusetts. Mm. If I were to drive straight through, it's about 17 hours. So, um, we're not driving straight through. I'm too old for that. <laughs> so <laughs> I can't even drive to New Jersey without stopping. Um, so yeah, so it'll be fun though, because, um, we're going to see some things along the way. We're going to stop at that, that garbage hole of a tourist trap south of the border. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and just, just have a really good time um, on the road. And I think it'll be good. Um, you know, I, I say this to my wife all the time, but some of our best conversations are had in the car because technology can't invade our space. I mean, it can invade her space as the passenger, but it doesn't. Mm. And so, like, I can't, you know, disconnect. I mean, I'm present and I'm there, you know. So, because we're, we're that couple that go out to dinner and then look at our phones and then share cat memes with each other instead of talking. So, <laughs> driving in the car, I'm looking forward to. Um, I'm also working on a review of the new Baron Fig uh, confidant that comes in the four colors. Oh, yeah. Those are so pretty. I know. I requested the yellow one because that's my favorite color. And it is really bright. I was skeptical. I, I wasn't sure if they'd be able to kind of pull that, that brightness off. Um, but it, it matches almost perfectly the, the ribbon, the bookmark. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about that on my blog soon. Um, but that's about it. I really kind of haven't had anything super exciting in my life just because school's been kicking my butt. Hmm. So, uh, what about you, Lenore? Well, so we, I did my UV fund thing with, with Spawn's class. So this is a mixed class of th- uh, first through third graders. And um, it, uh, we got each kid one of those UV spy pens that has invisible ink in it that shows up under the little UV LED in the lid of the pen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they had a lot of fun with us. First, we cut, we did Mobius strips, you know, so we cut up, you, you make a Mobius strip and you cut it in half around the thing and it turns into one long strip and you cut that in half and you get two strips, but they're linked, two loops, but they're linked. And, uh, so it's pretty fun. And, um, and then we did the UV stuff and, and had just some various kind of fluorescent slash neon slash glow in the dark items for them to play with, with their little pens. So it was really fun. And there was a lot of ooing and aahing and they were very excited. So that was a lot, that was, that was cool. That, that came off well. Um, it's hard to come up with visiting scientist activities you can do with first through third graders, especially as a chemist. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Although, you know, spouse does this most of the time and he goes in with things that they can actually play with and, you know, clean up pretty easily. But um, what about like that cool thing I see all the time where like they have a giant beaker and they mix two things and it explodes this huge column of foam. And I think it's like what, like hydrogen peroxide and something else. There's lots of things you can do, but there's carpet in the room. Oh, true. So, you know, I mean, trying to do something that the kids can do, like it would be easy to do demos, actually. Demos, um, demos are relatively easy, but, I, you know, I want to do something that they can do. Sure. And um, a lot of the times that he's gone in, he's gone on days when I was in class because it was just, mm-hmm. you know, when his schedule worked out with theirs. So, um, you know, he's probably been over there doing science with them three times as much as I have. And I've never been the one kind of organizing it in, in charge before just because he has a lot more resources for that because his job actually involves doing a lot of labs and demos and um, developing labs for high school students and and working with teachers and stuff like that. So, you know, that's kind of in his wheelhouse much more than in mine. 
but this is just an idea I'd had for a while and it was fun to do. And then the other thing that I'm really excited about right now is that spring break is coming up because I'm just holding on right now. You know, you, as a teacher, like you get as far ahead as you can before the semester starts. But then after that, the work is inevitably coming in faster than you can clear it or maybe not. Maybe everybody doesn't have that, but certainly for me, it's always the case that, you know, that stuff is coming in faster than I can get it done. And mm -hmm. so spring break is a time when, like, I'm doing slightly less work. Not, you know, I'm not going to say I'm doing the same amount of work over spring break, but there's nothing new coming in, which means I can sort of beat it down <laughs> <laughs> to the point that, that I can hold on until finals, you know? And so... It's you, it kind of gives you an inflection point. So yeah, there's always just like more stuff and more stuff and more stuff coming up, and and I'm usually you know by the time finals rolls around, I'm like barely hanging on. And if there were one more week of classes, I, then things would really start to actually you know collapse a little bit. And if there were two more weeks of classes, I would just be toast. I would I don't know what would happen, but yeah. So, you know, there's kind of the rhythm of the semester, but I'm really looking forward to that. I've only got one more week. I've got two exams to write for this week and um, and give, but then I'm not going to – that class doesn't meet again till after the break, so I'll be – I don't have to try to get those graded in two days or whatever. And, yeah, so that's my life right now. I'm just holding on. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Les? Uh, so I feel like I'm really out of the loop in terms of what's exciting. You know, I get the emails from Baron Fig and – I'm no longer on uh, field notes email thing. So I'm kind of out of the loop and I've, I've kind of like ever since I've been sick, I've been off Facebook and Twitter uh, for the most part. So even though I'm now feeling better, I'm just not connected on social media as much as I would was. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm kind of feeling done with Facebook, but I still, you know, I'm going into Facebook and I'm, I'm checking on RSVP and erasables and, and a couple of the other groups like manuscripting that I'm a member of. Um, but I've slid into this Slack community. I got invited um, to the, <laughs> it's hilariously named the Les Fick uh, Slack community, which is basically a group of authors who not all of them identify as lesbian or bisexual or gay, but they write mostly female, female, uh, romance and fiction or fiction that features lesbians as the main characters, which I'm, it, I don't know. It's like, I'm really enjoying that. So anyway, I've been like interacting on that Slack, Slack community more than I have other communities. Um, so I'm just really digging that. Plus it's also like, it goes back to like the thing that I was talking about before about how interesting it is, or actually this was before we were recording about in how interesting it is to listen to women who, who write, talk about their craft, because we don't hear that as much. We hear a lot of men talking about writing and the craft of writing and we don't hear women talking about it. Or if we do hear women talking about it, then we have men like talking over women and mansplaining um, the craft to us. So I'm really enjoying that. So uh, the other thing, the thing that I also find really exciting, I got the email about the rulers by Baron Fig. And I've always carried like a little steel ruler in my kit. And I think adding a small ruler to their lineup is super smart because it's such a good addition to just have, like, if you carry a notebook, having a ruler is smart. Definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. Especially, like, 
I use um, Write Notepads has that that small ruler. Mm, yeah, um, and I use that a lot more than I than I would think, especially if I'm like, you know, I want to organize a page, you know, map out like a, a side margin or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Have you guys ever used the um, adhesive tape uh, rulers? No. Mm. No. I don't know what that is. Okay. Yeah, you can get a I'm gonna I'll make a, a note to put this in the show notes, but you can get a um a roll of I mean basically washi tape, except it's you know, just plastic adhesive tape, but it's printed in inches or centimeters. And um so I started using this stuff like twenty years ago. I, I put it all around all four all four sides of the cutting table I used to use for cutting out fabric. Mm-hmm. You know, laying out patterns and cutting out fabric. And um, I've got, like, I don't have a massive amount of it left. I need to order another roll, but I've, I'm going to start putting that into my pocket notebooks when I open them up. Just mm-hmm. throw a piece of tape into the into the cover. Like, the field notes always have the inches marked off, right, Yep. in the, in the covers of their books. And um, and it doesn't have to be exact. It just I mean, if you're using the same measuring device, over and over again, usually within a project, it doesn't actually matter whether it's perfectly exact or not, right? Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, me- if all of your um, if all of your measurements are off by the same proportions, then within a project, it doesn't matter. Mm. But um, but no, I think it's pretty good, and uh, it doesn't stretch. So um, yeah, I've stuck that stuff all over a lot of places. You know, I've got it on my not just my cutting table, but like on my sewing machine uh, platform itself, and on my sewing table because it gives me a you know, it's it's always there and it's always handy. And then I've also got, of course, rulers that are only marked in inches. So I threw centimeter tape on the back of them. Oh, I don't even know centimeters. Uh, it's a lot easier to do if when you're trying to when you're trying to make up patterns or you know like um, design uh, you know make a design for something. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to work in centimeters than in inches because yeah. the math is just so much easier. I I got into using centimeters and millimeters when I was doing bookbinding. It's so much more precise than like, oh, it's an inch and three sixteenths. Right, exactly. Ugh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then you're constantly counting because it's not like there's a label on the three sixteenths. You're like, I mean, there's not even a label on the what line, what length the sixteenths mark is, right? right? So you're constantly having to do math before you can even do the math. Right. It's just so much easier to say, this is 214 millimeters. Yeah. Yes, very much easier. And then, you know, going even going from inches to feet, right? Or, you know, if you have to double something that's 7 sixteenths inches or, you know. Yep. Well, 7 sixteenths isn't that hard. But, you know, if you're trying to do, I need to double a measurement that's 9 sixteenths and then add on a force, you know, a 3 sixteenths margin on either side or whatever, it's... You know, it's trivially easy to do that in centimeters or, or millimeters, and it's much more difficult in inches. So, yeah. But I've got, you know, the nice rulers I have, the nice metal rulers for, for the most part that I already have are all in inches. So being able to convert those, you know, because I'm such a nerd. <laughs> yeah, you are. That's kind of my thing. <laughs> Did you have more or less? Nope, I'm good. Haha, <laughs> more or less. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't made that joke in a while. I think we haven't. more or less. <laughs> <laughs> I'm making a little note to myself here about the ruler tape because I got distracted. So this week's 
topic that we want to talk about is actually the science of graphite. And this is, uh, dumbly enough, this is one of the first topics I think it was D actually suggested when we were even spitballing ideas for this podcast. And it's taken us, what, almost a year yeah. for me to be like, okay, I think I can cope now. <laughs> and just so you know, I mean, this is outside of my, like, you know, this is outside of my research area. We're a little outside of my wheelhouse here. So I'm going to, if I have to guess on something, if you guys ask me some good questions, I don't know the answers to, and I'm guessing on it, I will at least tell you I'm guessing on it. I'm sure you know mm-hmm. just enough <laughs> to get myself in real trouble. This is the thing. And my husband can never hear this because I'm sure he'll find something that's wrong and he will give me crap about it from now until one of us is dead. <laughs> it's how long that will go on. Oh, well, what is actually that made me just think of something. I mean, we're going to talk about graphite and you're going to do a lot of talking and question answering. What is your expertise? Like, why are you credible, Lenore? Oh, well, because a lot of what we're talking about is gen chem. Okay. And um, I'm I'm really good at general chemistry, actually. That. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, oh, you want you want my uh, you want my science resume? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we never talked about that. I I don't know that about you. Like, I don't know what your specialty is or what you're interested oh. in. Well, okay. So my I, my graduate work, my my PhD dissertation was in uh, was in inorganic chemistry, which is, you know, generally speaking, things that have carbon and hydrogen in them both, we would lump into a category of organic chemistry, broadly defined, and things that don't include both carbon and hydrogen get lumped into inorganic chemistry. So you can have carbon or hydrogen or neither, but not both, generally speaking, for inorganic chemistry. Um, so when people talk about taking orgo, this is, you know, broadly speaking, it's carbon based chemistry, but it's, um, you know, organic compounds are typically, you know, limited to being classified as those that contain both carbon and hydrogen. But as you might guess, with any classification scheme, you have a lot of borderline cases, right? <laughs> and it kind of depends on how close you're looking. And so, um, even though my graduate work was broadly defined as inorganic chemistry, I was working with a lot of compounds that had sort of carbon-hydrogen um, molecular fragments stuck onto metals. And right. one of the first things, if you've taken any gen chem, one of the first things we do is talk about the difference between ionic and covalent compounds. And we say, well, if it's got a metal and a nonmetal, you throw it in the ionic box. And if it's got two or more nonmetals, you throw it in the covalent box. And in fact, that, that even that, like that's the second day of class and it's already a lie. Because, <laughs> I mean, it's not a lie, but it's an oversimplification, you know. So it turns out that lots and lots of metals can make covalent bonds and lots of the kinds of compounds that you can make with metals um, are covalent enough that you have to treat them as covalent. But in Gen Chem, typically, the, everything that you see that has a metal and a nonmetal in it, that's going to be ionic enough that you should deal with it kind of thinking of it as ionic. And then we... You know, we get you through Gen Chem with some sort of broad categories, and then we spend the next three or four years uh, explaining all the ways that we lied and oversimplified things. <laughs> so, yeah. 
so that was my graduate work. But my, um, you know, since then, I've mostly taught a lot of gen chem for the last 20 years. And I've done a lot of work with the, uh, the AP chemistry exam. I've been, you know, doing um, reading for them for a long time. And I've uh, done some writing for the test development committee there, writing and reviewing for that test development committee. And I chaired the um, SAT chemistry test development committee for a while, which was really fun. Boy, you want to talk about nerding out. That's fu- seven people getting into a room and arguing about where commas should be placed. And, you know, like, not really, but, you know, I mean, some, yeah, actually, whether we need commas or not. But, you know, trying to write questions that are scientifically, uh, you know, rigorously correct, but also still accessible to students, which is, you know, for some of you might have gotten a glimpse from the other things I was just saying that that can be hard, right? That Mm -hmm. if you write a question that's actually um, at a gen chem level, you have to be really, really careful about whether the science is actually wrong, if you start looking at it more closely, right? So that can be really challenging. But it's, you know, it's just a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. So, yeah, I've got pretty good gen chem chops. I put myself up against most people fairly confidently. Nice. But, you know, that just brings it down to an appeal to authority. So I'm going to say what any good scientist should say. You can research it for yourself and find (laughs) the evidence and and learn to evaluate it. And I would encourage you to do so, whether you believe me or not. (laughs) So there, that's my... So, um, I just, uh, what do you guys know about graphite? Um, it's in pencils. Good start. (laughs) Um, I actually used graphite about a month ago. My, my front door lock was getting kind of annoying with my one key. Like it's just getting stuck. So I used some graphite and it fixed everything. It's like butter, right? Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, so. I had to do that with mine, and my my key was getting sticky, and I, I even I'm amazed at how great it is now. Mm. Like I keep wondering if I accidentally left the door unlocked because it unlocks so easily when I stick my key <laughs> in and turn it. I'm like, did I leave the house unlocked all day? <laughs> no, the lock is just working properly. <laughs> but that's about it for me. Um, that's all I know. And I okay, know so that, like, sorry, the. Like when I've looked at like like I know the the molecules of graphite are very like uniform and and tight together like like layers so to speak if mm-hmm. that makes sense. But yeah, yeah. Les, did you have anything else? No, no. I'm okay. Just so um, so there okay so there's a top down approach and there's a bottom up approach here. Which which do you guys want to go for? What's easier for you? Oh, I can I come on. I can <laughs> do either one. I'm inclined to do the bottom-up approach. Okay, bottom-up approach. So do you know what the smallest pieces of, um, let's see, do you know what the smallest pieces of matter that chemists would deal with would be called? No idea. All right, that's we're just, that's, we're just finding out where we are. Okay, so the smallest pieces that we would deal with would typically be atoms, right? So an atom would be like, if you ever look at a molecular model, one of those little spheres is an atom. Mm -hmm. And a collection of those little spheres stuck together with sticks would be a molecule. Okay. And those are words that frequently people, you know, in everyday speech, people 
they've heard those terms, but they kind of get away with using them interchangeably as just something really small and really fundamental. Yes. But um, if we're going to talk about this, we have to like we have to start using those terms with a little bit more precision. So molecules are made of atoms. And they're specifically made of atoms that are held together in a very specific way that's called covalent bonding. And covalent bonding just means that the atoms are sharing electrons between them. So um, I say that atoms are the smallest pieces that chemists would be interested in. And that's, again, nearly true. But really, atoms are also made of smaller pieces. You've heard of those. It's protons, neutrons, and electrons. Yes. And for our purposes... Protons determine what uh, what particular kind of atom you're dealing with, what element it belongs to. And neutrons you can largely ignore uh, uh, in chemistry. In physics, they're really important, but in chemistry, you can ignore them and just figure that they're adding mass, which is not going to come into our conversation today. Um, and then the electrons are doing all of the chemistry. So the number of protons tells you what kind of atom it is, but it's the electrons that actually participate in all the chemical processes. So does that sound okay? Yes, and it sounds mm -hmm. super familiar from when I took chemistry about 20 years ago. Right, yeah, years exactly. Ago. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> like, oh, yeah, kind of remember that. Um, now, that's for thinking about the objects, thinking about the actual pieces of stuff that matter is made of. We also need to talk about categories, and you probably have heard these too, about elements and compounds. And again, you know, terms that people can use in everyday speech and not really differentiate between them, but, um, but that we need to actually separate out a little bit. So um, elements are in the periodic table. Everybody's seen the periodic table, right? Yes. So um, if it's listed in the periodic table, it's an element. So, you know, we, we have essentially a hundred odd elements that are significant to work with. And all of the compounds that we can make, you know, salts, sodium chloride, a gazillion different sugars, um, a bunch of other carbohydrates that you can make out of sugars, a gazillion different proteins, all the organic compounds, all the inorganic compounds, they're made out of that library of about 100 elements. And you could put them together in essentially an infinite number of combinations. So if you think about, if you think about atoms as letters and molecules as words, mm -hmm. you know, we have in English 26 letters and we can put those together in an essentially infinite number of different ways, right? And then if you start putting if you start putting words together, you can do, you know, then you have another whole set of infinity. Mm -hmm. um, and also, you know, that analogy actually holds up a little bit farther because if you think about in English, there's an infinite number of ways that you can put letters together, but not all of them make real words. Yes. <laughs> so there's, you know, if you take the elements from the periodic table, you know, there's an essentially infinite number of ways that you could put those together, but not all of them make things that actually exist in nature. And sometimes you can make new combinations that will work, even though they've never existed in nature before, um, you know, which would be like coming up with new words that work in English, you know, like you could take the letters um you know, you have you have words like fake and fame mm -hmm. and take and name, but you mm -hmm. could also make like naif and fain. And those are words that sort of 
they look like English words because they're put together in patterns that work for English, but they don't happen to have actual meanings in English, right? Okay. And then you could just put letters together like like um, F-N-A-E, and that's not that doesn't even look like an English word, right? Mm. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> so that couldn't be an English word. Like you wouldn't come up with that if you were trying to name something new. And so you can talk about kind of the same thing with letters. Um, oh, you could talk about the same thing with elements that you could put them together in new ways that actually work, but you can also write down stuff on paper that would never really make, like you could never make it because the atoms just don't go together that way. So okay. all of that stuff is going on. Um, so coming back around to graphite, um, carbon is an element. It's listed in the periodic table. It's an early element in the periodic table. It's only got six protons. It's made just like all the other elements are when stars die, which is kind of neat. That's pretty cool. I know, right? We're, we are literally made of star stuff. You know, Carl Sagan had it right about that. <laughs> and um, so, you know, all of the – I don't know if you guys know this, but the our sun is at least a second-generation star. So um, the stuff that makes up our – solar system was all produced in the death of a previous star system and you know like recoalesced into planets and into all of the you know all of the all of the bodies that we see in the solar system now so um that carbon comes in two forms um carbon atoms always want to make four bonds and so we've got two options uh two general options common options for carbon uh, it can make four separate bonds to four other carbon atoms and sort of make like a, a lattice network in three dimensions. Mm -hmm. And that's diamond. That form of graphite, uh, that form of carbon is called diamond. And it's very, very hard because you're literally, you have chemical bonds all the way through it. Like one diamond is essentially one molecule of carbon. All of those carbon atoms stacked up in there are kind of equally bonded to the four carbon atoms around them there aren't any little molecules to come loose from each other which is what makes it so hard and the particular structure of the way that those carbon atoms are all stacked together the particular sort of long-range crystalline network that you get out of that is what makes it possible to cleave those crystals in a lot of different directions and get the very sparkly very um you know, very refractive, very reflective effect of a cut diamond, but it also gives it a lot of its other properties, like its hardness um, and its chemical resistance and all that kind of stuff. And then with graphite, you have kind of, what, the opposite end of the spectrum, even though it's the same atoms, just arranged in a slightly different way. And I'm going to put some pictures up with this, but um, you can think about, if you think about like a sheet of chicken wire, Mm -hmm. with the little hexagonal pattern, or you think about a tile floor with hexagonal tiles. If you think about a carbon atom at every corner of a hexagon, and then the three lines sticking out from that is connections to three more atoms, but really the bonds there you can kind of think of at the first level as being one double bond and two single bonds so that your carbon atoms still get four bonds. It's more complicated than that. We'll talk about that in a minute. But um, but you get basically a sheet of hexagons in which every corner is a carbon atom, and they're all stuck together in these sheets. 
sheets, but those sheets are very, very, very thin, very flat, like a few picometers, <laughs> like something like 70, uh, 0.07 nanometers would be the, the range that we would be on. So if you've talked, if you've heard people talking about nanochemistry or nanoscience, nanobots kind of thing, um, we'd be at 0.07 nanometers for the size of those atoms, which is a little bit crazy, you know, to think about something that small. So in graphite, you have essentially one of those sheets being a single molecule of graphite, and they can go on essentially infinitely, you know, as molecules would see it in every direction, but only in two dimensions. And then those sheets stack up, but there's no real connections between the sheets. They're just stacked up by static cling. And that's what makes the graphite really, really soft because those sheets can slide apart from each other really easily um, because they're so thin and they're only very, very loosely held together. And it's literally static cling. It's literally just um, relatively weak plus minus interactions that hold it together so that um, so that the sheets can can slide apart from each other very easily. And that gives it both its ability to make marks on paper, because when you drag a piece of graphite across a piece of paper at a molecular level the the roughness of the surface of a piece of paper is like the himalayas and mm. it's scraping off those pieces and and actually little crystals of uh of graphite but it's also what makes it a good lubricant because even though it's a solid and it doesn't trap dust and stuff the way that a liquid, the way that an oil would, it lets the metal parts not be rubbing against each other. The metal parts are rubbing against the graphite, and the graphite can can slip and fragment at a molecular level and allow the metal parts to slide past each other without grinding or without getting damaged or scratched. So there, that's the bottom-up approach. <laughs> well, that was all super interesting and kind of, you know, explained that whole description I gave earlier with, well, these molecules, they're like close together and stacked on top of each other. Exactly. So. Yeah. So, I mean, you clearly had the picture in your head. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Did, did that come across okay? Or do you have, yeah. was there stuff in there that was unclear? No, no it was very it, clear. I go back to made sense. And I think you kind of touched upon the answer to that question. Why is graphite such a good lubricant? Yeah, why it's a good lubricant is fairly easy because, you know, people, because it is easy to imagine that, um, that those particles being able to break, you know, those particles being able to shear off really easily. And, you know, basically what you're doing when you grind, when you, when you put your key in after having lubricated the lock with graphite is you're grinding the very small particles of graphite even finer. You're making graphite dust into smaller pieces of graphite dust every time you do that. So is is the reason that graphite is shiny is because it's so flat? Um I think so. So there's there uh, this was a little bit more complicated to find out about. And mm. so you got two things about the appearance. One is that it's black mm. and one is that it's shiny, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Which is a little bit weird if you think about it, because, you know, most of the time we would think about something absorbing light or reflecting it. Right. But it does both. But it does both. So there's several things going on there. So now we have to talk about the electrons. Are you ready? Yeah. (laughs) Because this is also going into some of the things. Remember how I said earlier that in those flat sheets, like each corner of a hexagon would be a carbon atom, right? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And I said, you could think of it as having kind of a double bond to one carbon, one neighboring carbon atom and single bonds to the other two. Each Mm -hmm. carbon is surrounded by three other carbons. And you can think of it as being a double bond to one of them and a single bond to two others, right? Mm -hmm. With me there, we got like a little Mercedes Benz symbol, right? (laughs) (laughs) But it's actually a little bit more complicated than that because what you really have um, and I'm going to have to tell you a little tiny bit more chemistry here. Those bonds that we talk about, those covalent bonds, each consist of two electrons that are being shared between two atoms. So every time we draw a little stick between two atoms, we're representing two electrons with that. And without getting into the shape and the structure and why that happens, we can really think of those electrons as being a total of eight electrons that are shared around three connections. So rather than talking about it as a double and two singles, we really need to be thinking of it as like three bonds that are each like one and a third bond, Hmm. which is a little bit weird, right? Until, you know, but it means we have eight electrons shared around three connections. So we say the bond order there is one and a third or 1.33. Okay. And it just means that all three of those bonds are essentially equal. Now, here's what's nuts about it. Here's where it gets a little bit crazy and a little bit different than what most people have, you know, probably gotten to in in their Gen Chem classes. When you make a single bond between two atoms, it's really localized. It's really limited to that one spot. Those two electrons, they live around those two atoms and they don't travel. But if you make a double or triple bond, those electrons are a lot more mobile. And when you set up an array in which you have a whole bunch of double bonds kind of scattered all the way through it, you get a very large degree of mobility for the electrons that are involved in those double bonds. Like you essentially have made sort of an electrical cloud that can pass through that structure. And it starts with those very limited rigid single covalent bonds but then that x that fourth line in the case of graphite you know we we take the carbon we put three carbons around it we draw one line to each of them but the fourth line is really spread around and when you draw that whole sheet of chicken wire or when you look at that whole tile hexagonal tile floor there's electrons that can move freely through that whole array Hmm. and that gives you the electrical conductivity of graphite, but only, only within the plane. Because remember those sheets stacked up on top of each other, they're not bonded. They're not passing electrons between them. And so you, if you had a single crystal of graphite, it's actually not conductive, like boring down through the sheets, through the stack of sheets. It wouldn't conduct electricity in that direction. Um, it only conducts along the sheets, parallel to the sheets, which is kind of crazy, right? There's actually a term for it in, in science. It's called, it's it's anisotropic. And isotropic would mean it was the same in all directions, isotropic, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Same in all directions. And anisotropic means that it's different in different directions. And so, you know, if you had a single crystal of graphite, if you were thinking about the sheets just stacking up horizontal, you know, uh, horizontal sheets stacking up in a vertical stack, there would not be electrical conductivity in the vertical direction, but there would be electrical conductivity in any horizontal direction. You could pass electrons through that really, really easily. And it's that electrical conductivity um, 
the electrical conductivity is rooted in the mobility of those electrons, but the light absorption is also rooted in the mobility of those electrons. The fact that those electrons can move around a lot also means that they have a lot of excited states that are very, very close together, which means that they can absorb basically any wavelength of visible light. And that's why if you have very finely ground carbon, it looks black, like activated charcoal, like you would Mm. use in your fish tank or something like that, is among the darkest things that most people would ever lay their eyes on, right? Right. You know, assuming you can't get a sample of Vanta black or something like that. (laughs) Because it just, it absorbs basically all the light that falls on it. And so it looks really, really black and it looks um, very flat and very textureless. When you get that glittery, shiny effect of graphite, it's really more about having some uh, larger crystals of it that have fracture planes. And it's the planes that are reflecting some light. And so we say it looks shiny because you can kind of find some angles where it does reflect But really, it's not shiny like silver is shiny, right? Or like metals are shiny because it's still absorbing most of the light that's on it. You just kind of get at certain angles, you get a little bit of reflectance, but it's still black. Mm. Yeah. Right? Right. So for something to really be shiny, it's got to be reflecting a lot of light, (laughs) right? Mm. And this isn't. And I think when you write on the page with it, this is, again, my suspicion and not something I could find confirmed in the research that I was doing over the last couple of days. But um, I think when you write on the page, because you've got a very directional kind of pressure to that, it's making flakes of graphite. And here I'm not even talking about the sheets, the individual molecular level sheets. I think I'm probably just talking about microscopic flakes of graphite. It's kind of making them flatten out and and line up and giving you that slightly reflective surface because it'll still look black from straight down you know you still have to kind of move your head around to find the angles at which it'll reflect and i suspect it's just about the direction you're moving your pencil and the pressure the pressure that you're um that you're creating sort of a flat uh more uniform surface there if you've ever done pottery yeah um Mm -hmm. one of the things that was really interesting to me about doing pottery about throwing pots on a wheel was um, how when you wedge your clay, you have to you have to keep the same direction of rotation. Mm-hmm. You know, when you wedge the clay, if you if you put it down on the on the um, on the wheel the wrong way, or if you spin the wheel the wrong way, it's just going to fight you all over the place. And that's because the structure, the polycrystalline structure of the uh, silicate clay, is little. Is, is flakes. It's tiny flakes. And when you're wedging the clay, you're sort of getting all of those flakes to line up the same direction and swirl around your piece of clay the same direction. And if you try to go the opposite direction, it's like rubbing a cat the wrong way, you know? Yeah. It's <laughs> not good. Yeah. And it fights you. <laughs> yes. I know. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's actually really kind of a similar a similar effect to that. Or if you think about those mermaid pillows and, you know, the, the sequin thing mm-hmm. where the, where the sequins, oh, yes. yeah. you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I saw those and I immediately thought about wedging clay. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's my suspicion. And then, you know, of course you can polish a piece of graphite if it's the right kind of, uh, if it's the right kind of graphite and it's very dense, you can, you can polish it to a pretty shiny surface mm-hmm. and it'll have that shiny 
shiny effect. And I, I, I think it's just kind of like anything that you get smooth enough, it reflects light in certain directions. That's my suspicion. Yeah. Hmm. I wish I had a better answer for you. Oh. So what other, any other questions that you have thought about while I was talking? Keep me honest. <laughs> I think um, you've answered most of like the questions that I had. Yeah, I mean, my one thing, and this is not even like a technical science question, it just made me, I just thought of it because we were talking about graphite and pencils and stuff, is the fact that you have to use a pencil significant for scantrons because of the composition of graphite? Um, so, oh, or yeah. Or could you just so, use okay, a pen? So, well, it depends on the kind of machine. So some of the uh, some of the machines scan optically, which means that they're looking for the reflectivity of the paper. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if it's going through black, it's probably going to show up. So if somebody used a black pen or something that was, you know, sufficiently um, absorbing the light rather than reflecting it back. Now, I'm guessing at this because I've thought about it, but I always think about it when it's not convenient to look up. And I did not look this up before we're recording today. But this is what I've thought about. But some of the machines actually look for electrical conductivity. And so they're, they're looking for graphite. Um, yeah, they're looking for the fact that there's a, a spot on that page that conducts electricity. So then it's, that's why it's got to be graphite. And, you know, you guys know that the number two thing is just bogus, right? Yes. Yep. I mean, it's not completely bogus because... Obviously, it doesn't actually have to be a number two pencil because that would be relatively meaningless. But what specifying a number two pencil does do for you is it keeps people from using either very hard pencils where there not, might not be enough graphite laid down or where the um, proportion of clay and wax in that, in that core might be so high that the electrical conductivity wasn't enough for the machine to detect. Mm-hmm. Mm but not so soft that it's actually gunking up the machine, right? And transferring into the innards of your machine and making it so, you know, you don't want that stuff to be transferring to whatever the reading heads are, right? Right. Yeah. Um, I know our machine, a couple times I've had somebody turn in a Scantron with ink on it that it actually seemed to read, but it definitely doesn't read it reliably. You know, I don't know what the modern machines are like because I've never used one. Ours, the I don't know how old it is, but the manual was printed in 1986. So, oh, wow, yeah. six. Yeah, so it's been around a while. But I mean, it still runs. It just doesn't do any. It doesn't do any electronic stuff. It just, you know, it just reads whether there's a right answer there and and prints a total on the card. But it uh, it works. So. Hmm. Yeah, so I think it's I think for most of them it started out being about the electrical conductivity and that was why the IBM Electrographic, right? Because that was for mm-hmm. um that was for cards, you know, to be able to be scanned by machine. Somebody also asked about you know, where is graphite produced? This was actually really interesting because it turns out that the United States produces no graphite. What? Huh. Really? I know, zero. We don't I mean there weren't there aren't even statistics for it. We don't produce graphite we consume and we import it and uh china is actually the biggest producer of graphite um they produce uh it looks like uh for the for the most recent years i got numbers for 60 66 percent of the graphite in the world wow is produced by china and then india is um india is second but they produce like a fifth as much and then 
Brazil and then Turkey and then you know then you're down into to the small producers Turkey North Korea Mexico Canada Russia Norway Madagascar those are the top ten um, starting with China India and Brazil so that was kind of interesting it didn't occur to me that that the United States would produce zero graphite you know yeah really um, natural graphite now there's other kind of graphite like products that you can make from from various uh, organic sources, you know, like you can make, you can make um, uh, metallurgical coke, which is graphitized carbon. You can make that from coal, which is a very, very messy form of largely graphitic carbon, um, carbon black. You may have heard of mm-hmm. uh, that you can make from, from liquid or gas hydrocarbons just by heating them up at very high temperatures with limited oxygen. So you get incomplete combustion. Uh, they don't go all the way to carbon dioxide and you get carbon black, you know, as basically soot. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of, obviously most carbon does not go into pencils. Pencils are a fairly niche use for it. You know, most of it goes into things like, um, well, actually for the coal, for the medical metallurgical Coke produced by produced from coal, mm-hmm. uh, 92% of that goes into blast furnaces for seal, steel manufacture. Hmm. Ah. Yeah. And then um, for the carbon black, something like 90% of that goes into tires, production of tires. Interesting. Um, only about 4% of the carbon black goes into pigments for, um, for inks and paints and paper and stuff like that. Um, although those were somewhat old numbers and it may have changed, I, I should follow up and see if I can find some more recent numbers for that. But, um, you know, so like the toner in the copy machine is largely uh, very, very fine particles of graphite, you know, again, with like, you know, other stuff in there that's all proprietary formulas about how to get it to stick to the paper when it's heated. But it's black because of carbon, which is kind of cool. Hmm. Yeah, toner is hell, though. I actually, um, <laughs> the, the printer at work yesterday was like doing that thing where like it doesn't print like an entire section of the page. You got to shake the toner cartridge. Yes, yes. <clears throat> well, I got it all over the floor. It does not come up easily. No, not my problem. Mm. <laughs> but no, it's just, it's like the worst kind of thing to get on you. Yeah, it stains. It turns everything kind of like a yellow color that it touches when you wash it out. Oh, really? Yeah. I guess I've never gotten it on myself that much. That shouldn't be from the carbon. That's interesting that it would Probably do that. It must be else. from the... Yeah. Um, not... Ca- well, it is carbon-related, but, like, when I was in my undergraduate, I had to use compressed charcoal for my art classes. Yeah. And that did something similar to when you get carbon, like, toner on your on your clothing, it mm-hmm. would it would turn whatever was white like a yellowish color. Hmm. And only in the spots that it had touched. It was nasty. Yuck. Yep. And I assumed that was always because it was, you know, carbon black or from, you know, charcoal that was crushed up and compressed. Well, generally speaking... It's actually really, really easy to make yellow stains because, um, yeah, so I'm nerding out again. Sorry. That's okay. Uh, because, uh, you know, from your color wheel that yeah. you get yellow by absorbing violet. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. Yes. And so on the violet end of the spectrum, 
first of all, we don't have great color sensitivity at that end of the spectrum anyway. Um, so taking out a little bit of it kind of gives things that yellow tint. But second, a lot of molecular absorptions are in the UV to begin with. Mm-hmm. And since we don't see uh, in since we don't see in the ultraviolet, we would never notice if something was absorbing UV, right? If it's absorbing orange light, then we'd see the thing as being blue. And it's, if it's absorbing green, we'd see it as being red. But if it's absorbing in the UV, we don't care. But um, if you can get chemicals that are a little, you know, they're sort of slopping over from absorbing UV into absorbing a little bit of violet, hmm. then you get that yellow effect, right? And that's why your clothes, your white clothes can start to look a little bit yellow if they get certain kinds of stains in them. And it's why old ladies use bluing in their hair because, <laughs> you know, because it tends to, because it tends to have you know, whatever chemicals they tend to be absorbing a little bit in the violet and that makes the white hair appear yellow. Mm. And so if you use a little bit of something that adds a very slight amount of violet dye, then you're balancing out that yellow color. And if you use too much, then you end up with purple hair, right? <laughs> you end up with blue hair. You know, I've, I've also read, I haven't actually talked to anybody who's been directly affected by this, but I've also read that people who have cataracts will frequently see things, everything kind of looks yellow. Hmm. Hmm. Which is just crazy. Very true. So there, that's basically everything I know about graphite. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that's good because we are at about an hour and 15 minutes after you edit. So it's a good point to end unless we have other questions no i mean that was really good i learned a lot yeah me too i'll try to cut it down to something that'll actually be interesting and it was like a lot (laughs) well you can you can also trim out some of my um monologue about brave yeah (laughs) i mean it doesn't really go with our podcast but at the same time it's going to incite some hate so i don't even see how you don't think in our group sentence it doesn't go with our podcast that's true. I think I mean, our group would be fine. <clears throat> Speaking of, I mean, there may be some people that it really meant a lot to them, but we don't actually all have to like the same thing, right? I mean, it's true. And it's not like you just said, I hated this. It's like you, you said you had you reasons. reasons. Right? You yeah. gave evidence to support your position. Correct. That's the difference between a position and an opinion, right? Right. You cited your sources. <laughs> <laughs> My sources are great internal conflict and hate. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you both very much. Shall we? Uh, thank we you. Wrap this up. I would like to take a moment to just say again, thank you so much, everyone, for your supportive words on the website and in the Facebook group. We have really appreciated just feeling ourselves sort of held up in your hands and being <laughs> taken care of by the group. Just want to give a quick thanks to everyone who continues to support us and uh, especially the people who have joined the Facebook group. And please, if you do have a chance, go give us a review on iTunes. That'll help other people find us uh, who might be interested. Um, you can find the podcast at rsvpstationarypodcast.com. You can find me, well, really just Facebook, theoretically on Instagram <laughs> and Twitter. There's links from the webpage, but 
uh, on Facebook through the RSVP Stationery Podcast Group or through the Erasable Podcast Group. Uh, Les, where can we find you? You can find me um, at ComfortableShoesStudio.com, Facebook at the same, Instagram and Twitter at Original LC Harper. And Dee, where can we find you? You can find me at TheWeeklyPencil.com, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at TheWeeklyPencil. All right. So tidy. Thank you both. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks.